Um, one of the uh, one of the kind of the big convictions that we have as a as a church um, here is that we we believe that the whole of the Bible is about Jesus. Um, J- Jesus himself claims that. Of, of course, for example, a bit further on, a couple of pages on in, in John five thirty nine, he says to the Jewish leaders who he was talking to, you, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me. So, so Jesus himself claims that that's just one example, uh, that, that all the scriptures are about him. And, and so we, we try to show that as we preach through them. But recently, we, you know, we've been preaching through, for example, books like Haggai in the Old Testament and 2 Corinthians. Um, some, sometimes, uh, um, as, as we go through books like that, it, it can sometimes make either you know, sort of brand new Christians or, or, or maybe people who are investigating the Christian faith feel like you've, you've kind of started a box set halfway through the, the series, um, and, and so we, we, we've been having kind of occasional dips into a little bit of John's gospel now and again in order to show us or in order to remind us just who this man Jesus is, that he should be the central focus of the whole uh, of the, the Bible. So, so back in the, in the summer, we took a little two-week dip into chapter two of, of John, those two famous signs, uh, if you remember, that Jesus did, changing water into wine at a wedding feast. Uh, in in Cana, um, or cleansing the temple uh, in Jerusalem. Two signs that that showed us who he is, that that he's the Messiah, in other words, or the Christ. He's he's God's coming king. And and actually also what kind of Messiah, what kind of king he he is, that he's, he's come as the promised bridegroom king. That's what the first sign at the wedding feast was really all about. In other words, he's come to restore his people to God, something that the Old Testament pictures as being like a, a, a wedding feast, the wedding feast to end all uh, feasts. And so Jesus, as he produces bucket loads of, of vintage wine at the, at the wedding feast in Cana, is saying, I'm that one who was promised. I'm the bridegroom coming for my bride, Come, coming to bring in that restored relationship between God and people, God's kingdom. Uh, in other words, but not only is he the bridegroom, but but, but as the as the second sign um, in the second half of chapter two showed us, he's the judge and, and he's the revolutionary uh, as well. Something that he shows us as he actually um, acts to cleanse the temple in, in the first half of that parish, passage, and then as he um, promises to replace the temple. In, in the second half of it. So, so as he acts to cleanse the temple, he's, he's kind of indicating that he, if you like, is the owner's son. <laughs> he's come to clean up and judge all of the empty religion that was taking place there. Uh, and then he goes on to claim that actually he is the new temple. So he's come to fulfill everything that the temple stood for. So he's the king who's coming to bring in a, a whole new way of knowing God and being made right with God. And, and it's through him through Jesus. And so if this is who Jesus is, if he's God's promised Messiah, if he's the coming king who brings in God's kingdom, well then what we need to know is who gets into God's kingdom and how. Back in chapter 1, verse 51, his promise to Nathaniel, who was his new disciple, is, is that you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That's a, a, an expression that Jesus used of himself. In other words, Jesus is the ladder to heaven, if you like. As the coming king, he is the way into God's kingdom. So if he is the way into God's kingdom, who gets in 
and how. That's what John is going to be showing us, I think, uh, over chapter 3, which we're going to look at over uh, this week and next week. Um, And in fact, we started, didn't we, in the last three verses of chapter 2 and and then into chapter 3. And and you probably noticed there the language that Jesus uses is language of of kind of new birth or or language of being born again. And and I I wonder if, as you read that, it sent a bit of a shiver down down your spine (laughs) these days to be be, uh, one of those born again types is just loaded with negative connotations, isn't there? Have you ever had that levelled at you? I've lost count of the number of times that, that people have said to me, you know, with a kind of look of fear or suspicion on their face, oh, are you one of those born-again Christians? And, and you know, don't you? You know when they say that, that they've now got this image of you in their head as some kind of banner-waving crazy uh, or, or some kind of uh, Bible-thumping fundamentalist or, or, or something like that. And, and, you know, if you want to caricature Christians in that way, there is, there's, there's no shortage of ammunition. Is there? there are plenty of wacky people out there, and unfortunately some of them are Christians. Um, but, but as we approach this passage, my suggestion is that we get rid of those kind of uh, images out of our heads because this is language that Jesus uses... Not to talk about you know, religious fruitcakes or fundamentalists or something, but to talk about the total transformation that needs to take place in the heart of everyone if they are to get into God's kingdom. In fact, what we'll see in this passage is that according to Jesus himself, there is only one type of Christian, and that is a born-again Christian, a Christian who has experienced new birth. So I've got three questions for us to try and take us through the passage. Three questions about the, the kingdom of God. Questions that I think are vital for us to answer. And questions that Jesus does answer here in this passage. And they are firstly, who gets in to God's kingdom? And secondly, how do people get into God's kingdom? And then thirdly, can I get in to God's kingdom? So let's have a look. Let's, let's look firstly at who gets in to God's kingdom. And you'll notice, look, if you look at chapter 2, verse 23, Jesus has evidently stayed on in Jerusalem, hasn't he, after he's cleared the temple. And, and he continued to perform various signs, so, so various miracles, uh, which have caused many more people to, quote, believe in him. And and we might think of those people believing in him as a good thing, as a a positive thing. Um, But notice that Jesus evidently doesn't. Did did you pick up on that? Look what he says in verse 24 of of chapter 2. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, there's a bit of a word play going on uh, in those verses that our English translations don't quite pick up on because the word translated in verse 24 there, entrust himself, is the same word as the word believe in verse 23. So, so John's kind of telling us here with this, this word play that whilst many people believed in Jesus, he didn't believe in them. In other words, they were kind of impressed by his, his miracles, but their belief was, was kind of a superficial one. And, and Jesus saw that, verse 25, because he knew what was in man. In other words, he knows what people are like. And, and one of those people who saw Jesus' signs was this man Nicodemus. Look in chapter 3, 
verse 1. And, and as we'll see, like, like many of the others uh, here in Jerusalem, he has himself only a very superficial grasp of who Jesus is. And, and so if he is going to go beyond just the superficial to, to see Jesus as, you know, as he really is and, and so believe in the actual Jesus and, and so have entry into his kingdom, well, he is going to, be need, he is going to need to be born again. But at this stage, he's just someone who has simply seen Jesus' signs and so comes to question him. Have a look at chapter 3, verse 1. So there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And, and that, that sentence there uh, tells us actually quite a bit about this guy Nicodemus. So it tells us for a start that he's a Pharisee, verse 1, which means that he's a very religious man. You know, uh, sometimes we can have a bit of a, a downer on the Pharisees. You know, we, we, we can have a very negative view of the Pharisees. But they did have a lot going for them, actually. They were religious people. They, they read their Bibles. They prayed. They were, they were fastidious in their obedience to the law. They were people who were devoted to God. And, and this guy, Nicodemus, he's not just a Pharisee, but actually he's a ruler of the Jews, verse 1. That means he was a member of what was called the Sanhedrin. The, the, the Jewish ruling council, which is a group of, of 70 men who were the, the religious and the legal and the social leaders of the people, kind of like the parliament, I suppose, of, of the day. So, so, so people whom every Jew was accountable to. So he, he was a powerful man. And in fact, if you just flick ahead to verse 10, you'll see that Jesus describes him as Israel's teacher, which, which seems to be a, a title that he, that he had, suggesting that he was kind of a, a recognized teaching authority, if you like, an, an important Bible teacher of his day. So, so this is, Nicodemus is actually some guy, isn't he? He's a, he's a top religious ruler. He's one of the most powerful men in the land. And he comes to Jesus to talk to him because, verse 3, we know you are a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So, so here's one of the, the country's brightest, sharpest people who has witnessed Jesus' miracles and concluded that they are such that no one could do what Jesus does unless God were working through him. In other words, he, he, he knows full well that Jesus is not like a trickster, you know, a con man. Actually, there's something special about him that he can only attribute to God working in him. But I'll bet that not even he was prepared for what happens next. Because, of course, uh, Nicodemus has come to evaluate Jesus, hasn't he? You know, he, he, he's come expecting that he will ask the questions and do the probing and that Jesus will do the answering. But that's not how it works out, really, is it? Because the first thing that Jesus does is turn the tables on him and say to him, verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, Nicodemus, that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I, I feel a bit sorry for poor old Nicodemus here, because it, not only is he expecting to do the talking, but finds that Jesus has turned the tables on him, but worse than that is that what this teacher from God has to say to him, which I think would have been a, a massive shock, to, to Nicodemus, because if there's one thing that, that religious Jews like him were absolutely sure of, absolutely confident in, was that their entry into God's kingdom was a guarantee. You know, I mean, his, his religious CV was immaculate. 
wasn't it? If anyone deserved to get a place in God's kingdom, it was him. You know, he's got the theology degree. He's got the rule book nailed. You know, he's got the senior religious job. You know, he's got the lot, hasn't he? But Jesus kind of pulls the rug from under him and says, no, Nick, you know, if, if you or anyone wants entry into God's kingdom, you've got to be born again. And I think that's going to put him in a real spin. It's going to undermine everything that he believes, probably make him a bit angry as well. That Jesus with, with one sentence has, has kind of pulled the rug from under him. You can imagine what's racing through his mind, can't you? What did he say? I've, I've, got, I've got to be born again. Well, what do I need to, to do that for? What, what does he mean anyway? What's wrong with my credentials? You know, my, my law keeping, my, my devotion to God, my religion. Doesn't he know who I am? But Jesus does know who he is. And yet he still, Jesus says, needs to be born again. And, and actually, I've, I've wondered here whether John gives us a hint as to what Nicodemus's problem actually is. I, I wonder if you noticed, look, in verse 2, when, when, Jesus, when, when he came to visit Jesus, he did so by night. Did, did you notice that? That could just be a little detail that John throws in with not much significance. I don't really think so. There aren't many details that are put in the Bible with no significance at all. But, but it, it's conceivable that he was just kind of avoiding the crowds that were around during the day or he didn't want to be publicly identified with Jesus, maybe something like that. But actually it's striking that John repeats that little detail when he mentions Jesus later in the book in chapter 19, verse 39. So I, I think it's a detail that he wants us to notice. And I think that we need to notice it remembering that darkness and light you know, night and day are kind of theologically loaded terms in, in John's gospel. For example, in, in chapter 1, verse 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. You know, in other words, Jesus has come into the world as light into the darkness of our sin. Or, or if you flick on to verse 19 of chapter 3, and this is the judgment, light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. And, and actually, it's the same right, right through the book, that when words like light and darkness, uh, day and night, are, are used, they're used metaphorically to talk about spiritual or moral light and darkness. And, and so Nicodemus visiting Jesus by night in the darkness is, is John's way, I, I think, of just kind of hinting to us here that Nicodemus' problem is, is one of spiritual darkness, which I, I think will... We'll see. So, so not, in other words, not something that can just be sort of cleaned up with his religious credentials. That, that actually, despite all those credentials on the outside, he's a man in spiritual darkness and he needs to come into the light. And, and that's effectively what Jesus is saying to him here by saying that he needs to be born again. See, Jesus is not interested in his moral or his religious qualifications. You know, he, he doesn't care if he's got a theology degree or if he's called the Reverend Doctor or the Venerable or whatever it might be. He needs something more than that to get into God's kingdom. He needs to be born again. And friends, of course, that doesn't just apply to old Nick here, does it? J Jesus says we're all in the same boat. Verse 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So, so this applies to everyone, Jesus says. You know, whether you've been coming to church for years or whether you've just started this week, whether you're a respectable moral type, a pillar of a community like Nicodemus here, or whether you're the kind of person that everyone else has written off, you need to be born again, Jesus says. 
In other words, we need to give up trusting in ourselves and and our religious background or our good works or our respectability and admit to God that we are in spiritual darkness and that only a total transformation of our hearts through the Lord Jesus can save us. So who gets into God's kingdom? Well, you must be born again says Jesus, which, of course, immediately uh, raises the question, well, how? You know, how's that possible? How do people get into God's kingdom? We we can see that that it says, Jesus says, we've got to be born again. But what does that mean? Well, there's our second heading. You'll you'll see it in verses four to eight. Um, uh, How do people get into God's kingdom? Because this is old old Nicodemus's problem here, isn't it? Jesus says, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. But Nicodemus hasn't got a clue what what Jesus means, has he? Verse four, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and and be born? it's, I suppose he might be trying to take Jesus literally here and saying to him, hang on a minute, Jesus, you know, you're saying I've got to kind of climb back inside my mother's womb, be born a second time. I mean, how's that going to happen? I'm six foot two. You know, how's that going to work? Um, but I, I think more likely, you know, he's an intelligent man. He's probably picked up the fact that Jesus is speaking figuratively rather than literally. So this is just Nicodemus way of saying, what on earth are you talking about, Jesus? How can I do that? But either way, what's clear is that he's struggling to grasp what Jesus is talking about, isn't he? And, and friend, maybe that's you this morning as well. You know, perhaps you're thinking, what does Jesus mean? You know, do, do I need to have some kind of weird religious experience? Because I'm, I'm not sure I'm really up for that. Um, or, or is this just about turning over a new leaf, you know, trying a bit harder? Because if, if that's what he means by being born again, I can tell you that's not going to work for me. I, I've tried loads of times. I just keep going back to my old ways. You know, I, I can't change that dramatically. That won't work. So, so what is Jesus talking about here? What does he mean to be born again? Well, it's certainly not about a weird religious experience. And it's actually far more radical than just trying a bit harder or turning over a new leaf. What Jesus is talking about here is, is nothing less, actually, than a total transformation such that a complete change of direction, a U-turn, if you like, takes place in our lives. And we stop going our way and we go God's way instead. So, so, so how, how is that possible? You know, if I can't even keep a New Year's resolution past the second week in January, how, how am I going to manage that? Well, look at what Jesus says in verse 5. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, that may not immediately ring any bells for us. But remember that Nicodemus here is a a scholar, uh, an Old Testament scholar. And and Jesus clearly expects that he's going to understand what he means. He, he says in verse 10, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you don't understand these things. In other words, come on, professor, <laughs> you're supposed to know your Old Testament inside out. You, you need to be born of water and the spirit. Haven't you worked it out yet? But because you see the, the, the Old Testament prophets that, that Nicodemus spent half his life uh, studying, they, they spoke clearly of the fact that entry into God's kingdom required sin to be dealt with by washing and by the indwelling of God's spirit. 
So, so when Jesus says to him, you can't enter the kingdom of God unless you've been born of water and the spirit, he's got in mind uh, a passage like uh, Ezekiel 36, uh, 25 to 27 uh, in the Old Testament, which says, uh, you might remember the, the words, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. So, so that's God promising that, that a time would come when we can have entry into God's kingdom because God himself will bring us forgiveness. He'll wash us clean from all the wrong that we've done and he'll put his spirit within us. And, and Jesus is, is saying here effectively, uh, Nicodemus, that time has come. That time that was promised that you've been looking forward to, that you've read about in your Old Testaments, that time has arrived. I'm the one who's going to achieve all of that. So so do you see that the the total transformation that Jesus says is needed, but that we can't do on our own, he will do for us. So being born again is something that God does in us. In in other words, it's, it's total transformation, but it's by his power. Have a look at verse, uh, verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Do, do you see what he's saying? Flesh gives birth to flesh. You know? In other words, all, all humans, all sinful humans can give birth to is more sinful humans. So, so, so to be part of God's uh, family, we need a new birth that comes from God. And that's what God's Holy Spirit does in us. He brings us to new birth in him. Do you see? It's, it's total transformation that's needed for us to be fit for entry into God's kingdom. And that is only something that God can do by his Holy Spirit. And friends, that's what he does. You know, the incredible thing about being a Christian, becoming a Christian, is that God, through his Holy Spirit, actually changes our hearts. He actually changes our our desires. He doesn't leave us on our own to try and live the Christian life, but he's actually working in us, empowering us, helping us to to keep going in in living the Christian life. That's what verse 8 is getting at. When it says that the wind is something that, that we may not be able to see or control, you know, it blows where it wishes, but we can hear its sound. In other words, we can notice its effects. That's what the wind is like, and Jesus says that's what a Christian is like as well. When God, through his spirit, takes hold of a person's life, then over time, you start to see changes. You begin to notice the effects of God's spirit at work in them. You know... Um, as their passion for the gospel grows, or or as they love to be with God's people more, or as they delight in God's word more, or as their hatred of their own sin grows, and and so on. In other words, whatever the Spirit of God either loves or hates, well, those will be the things that gradually you come to love or hate. Of course, this doesn't mean that we're, we're perfect, and we're far from that. We still have this battle with our old sinful nature. But friends, we should be, if, if we are genuinely born again, we should be a work in progress. We should be a people under reconstruction. 
We should be a people being transformed into the likeness of Jesus. And, and so whilst we will see you know, many failures in our lives, we should still be able to say, you know, like, like uh, John Newton famously put it, I am not what I ought to be. I'm not what I wish to be. I am not what I one day will be. But I can truly say that I am not what I once was. And that it's by the grace of God that I am what I am. And, and so, Christian brothers and sisters, can, can I ask you, do you see the signs of the Spirit of God changing you, transforming you? You know, it might, might be slowly, might, might go up and down, but is there evidence of him changing your attitudes, your priorities, your desires to, to come more and more in line with his? Is there evidence of that? Because, you know, friends, if, if there isn't, you know, if you prayed a prayer many years ago, but actually nothing has really changed since then. You're still the same person you were before. It would not be safe for you to simply assume that you're a Christian. That would not be a safe assumption. Because Jesus says here in verse 8, you need to be born of the Spirit in order to enter the kingdom of God. And to be born of the Spirit is to have your heart transformed by him. And that will lead to changes as he gets to work in rebuilding you in his image. So how do people get into God's kingdom? Well, Jesus says you must be born of water. In other words, you need to have your sins spiritually washed away, cleansed and forgiven. And you must be born of the Spirit. You need God's Holy Spirit to transform your heart and give you spiritual life in him. And friend, the great news is that he does just that. Which leads to the final question then. We've asked who gets into God's kingdom and how do people get into God's kingdom? Finally, look from verse 9 to the, to the end to verse 15. Can I get in to God's kingdom? Because Nicodemus here, he's, a bit, he's still rather slow on the uptake, isn't he? Verse 9, how can these things be? In other words, how can somebody be washed clean and given this, this new spiritual life that you're talking about, Jesus? How does that happen? To which Jesus replies, I think in a gently mocking tone, verse 10, come on, Nick, you know, you're the theologian here. You're the great teacher of Israel. If you know the scriptures, you should know this stuff. And he just gently asserts, look in verse 11, the fact that he, Jesus, is the one who really knows what he's talking about. He speaks of what he knows and bears witness to what he sees. In other words, Jesus is the true teacher of Israel. It's just that people don't want to accept what he says. And, and I've even made it simple for you, he says in, in verse 12. I've, I've spoken of earthly things. I've used earthly illustrations and you haven't believed me. And so what's it going to be like if I start talking about all the heavenly realities, the things that are really beyond your, your knowing? If, if you stumble on the basics, Nicodemus, how are you going to cope with the advanced stuff? Do, do you see that there are a complicated few verses, those. But, but Jesus is getting to the heart, I think, of Nicodemus' problem. And it's not that he doesn't understand. It's that he doesn't believe. You do not accept our testimony, verse 11. You do not believe, verse 10. That, that's his problem. He needs to believe in, in Jesus. And so Jesus answers his question. How can these things be, says Nicodemus? How can I be born again? How can I get this fresh start, this, this transformation? Well, Jesus says it's through him. 
It's through the only one, follow these verses, it's through the only one who has come down from heaven, verse 13, in order to be lifted up, verse 14, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life, verse 15. Do you see the point? He's saying that no one can ever get into heaven unless, verse 13, God first comes down from heaven. And he has, it's me, Jesus says, the son of man. And I've come down in order to be lifted up, just like Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert. That's a reference for for some of you will know. It's a reference back to the Old Testament episode in, in the book of Numbers in uh, Numbers 21, where, where God had acted, uh, where, sorry, where God's people had acted in rebellion against God and God had judged them for their sin. He'd sent snakes into the camp that had caused many of them to die. But God didn't just act in judgment, but he acted in mercy as well, didn't he? Telling Moses to make a, a bronze statue of a snake and lift it up on a pole so that anyone who was bitten could trust in God's provision and look up at the pole and, and be saved. And, and Jesus here is looking ahead to, to what he knows is coming. And he's saying that when he is lifted up on the cross, as he will be, it'll be for a, a, a similar, but of course more significant, reason. It will be so that people can trust in him as God's provision to save them. Not, not from the poison of a snake bite, but from the much more deadly poison of, of their sin. Because, friends, you see, we too are under God's judgment. And the answer is to trust in God's provision of Jesus as he was lifted up on the cross in order to die in our place so that the curse of our sin could be paid for by him. So so can I get into God's kingdom? Can, Can this transformation, this fresh start, can I get it? You know, can it really be for me as well? Yes, it can, says Jesus. We've seen already that everyone needs this new birth. Now we see that everyone can have this new birth, including you this morning. And that's because it comes not from what we've done, but from what Jesus has done. And we get it, we can know this transformation, this fresh start for ourselves, simply by believing in Jesus. That means trusting in him and in his death in our place on the cross. And that we will then be forgiven for our sin, washed clean and given eternal life in his kingdom. Jesus here tells us that this is what we all need and that God is the one who gives it to us as we turn and trust in his son, the Lord Jesus, who was lifted up on our behalf through his death on the cross. So friend, can I ask you this morning, have you received that new birth yet? If you're not sure about that, Why not come and have a chat with me about it or have a chat with a Christian that you know here already? Please do that. Because Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Let's pray together, shall we?
Father, thank you so much for um, showing us just from the, the words of Jesus himself here the, the absolute necessity of being born again if we are to enter your kingdom. Thank, thank you that it, it means our, our sins, our, our rebellion against you washed away and, and your spirit within us to transform our hearts. Thank you that anyone, no, no matter who we are, no matter what we've done, anyone can know this fresh start for themselves because it rests on the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Um, so, so please would you help each of us this morning, we pray, uh, to, to examine our hearts and, and to turn and trust in him for ourselves if we haven't already done so. Um, so that we too may have eternal life in your kingdom. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.